Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. Elm City Church is a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together. No matter where you're at, these messages are meant to equip and strengthen you for the journey. You can find out more by visiting elmcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening. So about probably two and a half years ago now, when I started the church planting journey, I had an office over at Hannah Grimes. So Hannah Grimes Center for Entrepreneurship is about two blocks that way. And what was awesome about it would have provided the church a space to meet, but I also got to join this nonprofit incubator. And so Hannah Grimes didn't care what you were trying to start. They just wanted to help you start it. And so it was, um, it was me trying to start a church. The guy whose office was right next to mine was starting a brewery. Someone else was starting a nightclub. Um, someone worked with kids. There was all sorts of businesses. There were a wide range of spectrums. It was, it was super fun. And as I got to know the people that were a part of this, one thing that stood out to me was how many of these people that were a part of it had a huge heart for our community and were involved in different service organizations that they either were involved in or they had started. So there was people there who were helping um, the kind of the immigrant and the refugee uh, community. They were caring for that. There was people that were volunteering with the, the homeless community. There was people that had a heart for uh, low-income households who didn't uh, have access to healthy food. So trying to help out in that way. Uh, everyone there, for the most part, had a huge heart for our, for our community. But most of them, most if not actually all of them there when I originally started, would not have considered themselves followers of Jesus. And so that got me thinking as I was trying to make inroads of how do you connect in this community, how do you meet new, meet new people, that the whole model of um, you know, find a need and try to meet it isn't going to make you stand out. Really not in Keene, that's not going to make you stand out because everybody, I wouldn't say everybody, but a significant group of people who you know, just want to be a good neighbor are doing stuff like that. So by all means, I feel like the church needs to be involved in that, is called by Jesus to be involved in stuff like that. But necessarily, that is not really going to make us stand out better than the average person who just wants to be a good community member in Keene. It's a, it's, it's a unique thing about, our, uh, about, about where we're at. So if you were here last week, I want to show you a picture of our good friend, Mr. Stool. If you weren't here last week, hopefully you know that this is a stool. I shouldn't have to <laughs> explain that to you. And this is the question I asked last week was, which of these three legs is most important for this stool to stand up. You guys know? Yeah, all of them. Uh, last week, someone's like, the back one. <laughs> uh, yeah, every single one of these legs is important. It's in a three-legged stool, the way they're positioned. Take one away, it is not going to stand up. But I want to revisit a quote that I started with, because it's still been sticking with me, and it, and it says this, kind of why we put this up. Uh, the three legs of a distinctly Christian ethic are love God, love neighbor, and love enemy. Remove any one, and the resulting ethic is sub-Christian. So remove any one of these three, and the resulting ethic is less than the Christian ethic of love that Christ calls us to. And as we are, uh, I guess I answered my own question, but which of, these, <laughs> which of these three legs is the most distinctive? Which of these three types of love is going to make you stand out the most, kind of no matter where you're at? Yeah, love of enemy. It's also the most difficult, but it's the one that's going to kind of make you stand out. And without all three of these, the love that we have show is going to fall short of a distinctly Christian ethic of love. 
So we are in a, we're in a series right now. It's our sixth week. We got one more that we're doing called In Good Faith, being about what Jesus is about. And the launching pad for this series was the end of Colossians. We spent almost well, over four months-ish. I said I turned a 12-week series into 25 weeks uh, going through Colossians. But Colossians 4, 5, the very end of it says this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Or really what this is saying is make, walk in wisdom so you can make the best use of the moment that you find yourselves in. And as I was reflecting on the moment that we are currently in, in our community, in our country, in this time, thinking, how do we as a church, how do we as followers of Jesus make the best use of this moment? How do we reflect Jesus well in this time of 2020 as we're almost at the election in COVID, racial unrest, all of this stuff? How does the church make best use of the time? And as we've been going through this series, I'm actually pretty convinced that one of the greatest ways we can stand out and make a difference and model a distinctly Christian love is how we treat those who disagree with us, how we treat those who don't treat us well, how we treat our enemies. I want to um, read for you Luke chapter 6. We, were, we looked at it at the beginning of it last week. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's what Jesus has to say. It's, I'm going to read 27 through 36. Uh, If you want to turn there, it'll also be up on the screen. But this is what Jesus has to say about how we are called to treat our enemies. It's provocative. It's challenging. um, But uh, we talked about last week how Martin Luther King spoke on 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 this passage. And he said, basically, Jesus wasn't playing. He was serious. So therefore, we have an obligation as his followers to discover what does this mean? What does this mean for us? And how do we do it? Um, because we're going to see really through this that both the way of Jesus and the love of Jesus is different, subversive, and rewarding. So let me read, this is the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. He says this, but I say to you who hear, but I say to you who are willing to listen to what I have to say and respond accordingly, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. For if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who, uh, who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. These are the words of Jesus. So let's look at this because, again, pretty pretty challenging. Doesn't make a great bumper sticker. Uh, So the first thing we're going to see is that the way of Jesus is different. So this is a great example of how Jesus often used questions in his teaching to get his point across. 
And in the, in the passage section we're looking at, 29 through 32, he really starts off with three big questions. This is what he says. If you love those who love you, if you do good to those who do good to you, and if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Why should you think that's a big deal? And one thing I love is when sometimes bringing the history of, of uh, what's going on into it because it helps me get a better, clear understanding of what Jesus is saying and what he's critiquing. So first century audience would have known that what Jesus was doing, he was speaking and critiquing just the uh, system of reciprocity that was in that culture. So reciprocity is basically just a practice of exchanging things for mutual benefit. And that was more, like, pretty much every culture has some version of that. But in the uh, first century ancient Near East, this was embedded, um, not like all the way codified as law, but f- uh, much greater than just a cultural expectation. Um, so for example, here are some ways that it would play itself out in, in, in your day-to-day. Because this, this governed all of your interactions, this system of reciprocity. So when you threw a party, parties were expensive to throw, When you threw a party in that time, what you would do is you would really only invite people who had the means to invite you back to their own party. So you wouldn't necessarily invite someone who didn't have anything they could offer to you. So when you, you know, or you invite someone who might have been a person of wealth or influence, so therefore being next to that person kind of gave you credibility or something. You always invited someone that uh, that would be it would be beneficial for you to be for them. If you were a rich person or a government official. And let's say you did give to the poor or you did give to, um, to the down and out. You, the way you would get repaid would be either with uh, that, their loyalty or vote. So when you would give to the poor, give to the underclass, you were doing it. But the expectation was they would then repay you with their loyalty or their vote. Totally no application for that these days, but I'm sure we could find, find one. Pretty much everything was done with strings attached. Um, that was that culture. And again, this went deep because you were, you were pretty much contractually bound to repay anybody who was showing you charity. And so this is the system that Jesus is speaking into and he basically says, you know, when he asks those three questions, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those who do good to you, if you give to those who you're gonna you know, get paid back for, what, what makes you different than anybody else? Why, there's nothing distinctive about that. Why should you get credit in fact, he says, even the sinners do that. And when he uses this term sinners, it was more of a technical term for a class of people that were considered the, the outcast. So sinners were the, the tax collectors, those people who couldn't enter the temple, the, the, the prostitutes, the sex work. Like, that was a whole class of people, and Jesus is saying, even they do that. Kind of like, you know, even people in the mob buy their friends' birthday presents and send their mother's flowers on Mother's Day. Like, that isn't anything you should be patting yourselves on the back for. Uh, I, got, I got a question for you to think about this. How do you measure how your spiritual life is doing? Maybe you never even thought about that before. But how do you measure where your spiritual life is at? Is it you know, how often you come to church? Is it you know, how much you pray or read your Bible. Uh, we all, we, maybe you don't know, we all have an answer. We kind of we sit in there. And coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, I would say 
Very important things for following Jesus. You don't see really much pattern in the New Testament of people that are committed to him that aren't also committed to regularly gathering with his followers, that are committed to praying, uh, that that are committed to learning from his scriptures. But is that a good necessary barometer or measure for where, where your heart's at? The Pharisees were really good at all of that. <laughs> and Jesus would often go at them. But why did he go at them? It wasn't like he was saying these things aren't, 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 aren't good or aren't a big deal. The reason why he had a hard time with it was because they were doing all of those things, but they weren't treating people well. And I think the, the, when you look at the scriptures, one of the best ways to sort of see how am I doing is how are you treating other people? Our, how, when this is a, this kind of quote gets at it, it says, how well you love people is the gauge if God is doing something in your life. Uh, and, and this is really one of the new te- things the New Testament talks about when they talk about fruit. So, you know, if an apple tree is healthy, what are you going to see? Apples, hopefully healthy apples. If you are watering that tree and it's getting tons of sunlight, but it's not producing apples, something's wrong. You know, in that time, it was an agrarian, you know, vineyards were everywhere. How do you know if a vine is healthy? Producing grapes. How do you know if a, in a sense, a Christian tree is healthy? It's showing Christian fruit, which would be things like love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. And it's amazing how many of those things are ethics that, involve other people. They aren't necessarily, those things need to be reflected in how you treat other people. It's, it's, you know, it's, for the most part, it's easy to have patience-ish with yourself. (laughs) Easy to be kind to yourself, sort of. But where the rubber meets the road on all of these ethics is, how how does this translate to how you are treating other people? Which is why the, the, the way of Jesus is so kind of unique and different because Jesus says that my life in you is going to produce the type of life that not only helps you love me and love your neighbors, but actually pushes you as far as to love your enemies. The way and the love of Jesus is different. But secondly, the way of Jesus is subversive. This is, okay, this is different, difficult and challenging. You might be hearing it thinking, this sounds too passive and wimpy. Do we, does, this, does this mean we have to like, let people walk all over us and let, our, let, let those who um, mistreat us just kind of keep on doing? Is that what Jesus is saying here? And I, I don't think so. Because the way of Jesus is anything but passive. And in fact, through enemy love, Jesus is advocating in a way for a, a subversive revolution of that culture's ethics. So think of subversive as sort of the process by which the values of a certain area are undermined, but it's more from a bottom up than a top down. So it's not done by like overthrow from the top. It's done by a change of ideas. That's what, that's what would be a, a more of a subversive uh, revolution. It's a way of taking a structure of power uh, down in a way. And so we're not people living in the first century Roman empire. So we're going to miss this a little bit. But Jesus is not saying, hey, just let people passively walk over you. The implications of what Jesus was teaching here actually subverted the entire social structure of the Roman Empire. You know, in Acts 17, 6, one of my favorite lines in all of scripture, uh, people were going around from town to town preaching the gospel and someone in one of those towns was dismayed and said this, 
the people who are turning the world upside down, they have come here also. And the early church wasn't going around like with an army. The early church wasn't going around in a sense turning the world upside down like you'd normally think. But when people heard what they were teaching and preaching, what they were saying, they come to a town and they said, the people who are turning the world upside down have come here also. It's why, in, especially in Luke's gospel, you see it talks about that the kingdom of God is the upside down kingdom where all of the things that are normal seem to be reversed. Jesus says, love your enemies. Uh, the, you know, who, he who wants to be first should consider himself last. He who wants to be the greatest should consider himself the servant of all. And that way, that upside down kingdom started to change and started to transform the way people thought, interacted with each other. And Christians were distinctly different, even specifically how they treated those they disagreed with. So by now, everyone is pretty sick of politics. Can I get an amen? Amen. Unfortunately, it's not just going to magically magically, uh, go away. But this is the last Sunday before the election. There are, I was, I, was, I was watching my news feed, there are several pastors and churches that are seeing, even doing uh, sermons like, you know, how Christians should vote. And I don't think they're saying like necessarily vote for this specific candidate because you're not, you can't do that from, from, from the pulpit or you, you shouldn't do that. Um, but it's everywhere. So we can't just, I'm not gonna just stick my head and pretend like the election's not on Tuesday. And, uh, but, you know, the past two weeks I've been reading articles, you know, Christianity Today, their website actually had a series of articles that are really interesting that were, one article was uh, a Christian case for why you should vote Trump, a Christian case by, for why you should vote Biden, and a Christian case for why you should give, uh, demand better, vote third party, don't vote for either of them. I, every one of them was reasonably persuasive. I am not gonna tip my hand as to what you should do other than we have a great privilege in this country. Voting is a great privilege, so I would encourage everyone to do it. Don't take that for granted. Um, it's an honor that we, that, that we get to do it. Uh, but I'm not nearly as concerned about how Christians should vote as I am about how Christians should love. That is the much more important topic because voting is honestly so, in a sense, easy. You can walk into a booth how long, once you actually get there, get to the line, does it actually take to do? Three seconds? Or as you're agonizing over your choice, two minutes, whatever it is, check, done. And here's the thing, you can confuse that almost for doing something. In a sense, it's it's little, but you can confuse that for what Christ is calling his followers to do. It is so much easier to vote than it is to do what Jesus is calling us to do, which is love our enemies, which is uh, be, be, be gracious to those we disagree with. All of the stuff that he's calling us to do as his followers will be the same on November 4th or 12th or February, whenever we know who our new president is, whenever this whole thing gets resolved. What we need to do is follow an old playbook. How do we make a difference in our communities? The church, for the longest time, the biggest difference that they ever made, it was always bottom up, not top down. The early church did not make a difference in the Roman Empire because they had the best lobbyists to Nero. 
That wasn't what made the difference. What made the difference was they were committed to this. Let me, let me read kind of a little bit of Acts 2 and moving, and moving on. This is what we see the church doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all who believed were together and had, and had things in common. They were selling their possessions, being open-hearted and generous to those who were in need. They praised God together and displayed generous and thankful hearts. In the rest of the New Testament, we see that they cared not only for their own, but for outsiders. They stood up for the cause of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the outcast. They elevated women above the level that their, that their culture did. And as a result, the church grew. People were saved. Lives were transformed. They committed themselves to sacrificial service, authentic relationships, spiritual transformation. Again, I'm not saying that politics don't matter. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't care. Like, by all means, politics involve people, and people matter to God. So it's not unimportant. Don't hear me dismissing that. But what I am saying is the church, our calling is not changing. Our playbook for transforming love of community is not changing. So no matter what, we must be committed to that passionately. Because the way of Jesus, it's different. It is subversive. But finally, it is rewarding. The way of Jesus is rewarding. Because you might hear that and go, okay, we can try to just suffer through loving our enemies. We can try to do it. But I almost feel like when we do that, we're losing out. But Jesus does not phrase it that way. This is what he says. He says, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. That this is not the way where you lose out. This is the way that you gain. Uh, but what is the reward? Is it financial security? I, I don't think we see that. Is it personal security? If that's what it was, the early church missed the boat. What, what is the reward? And he says, and you will be sons of the most high. The reward is going to be that you are going to have a life that reflects your heavenly father in a unique way. Because one of the greatest honors and privileges of a follower of Jesus is to be living in a way that reflects God our father. In Genesis, the story begins, it says we were created in, the, in God's image as his image bearer. And one of the ways we bear his image is in a marred, not imperfect way, we reflect who he is. And Jesus is saying, and we see it in his life, that one of the greatest ways you reflect God's love is how you love your enemies. Because listen to what he says right here, talking about God. It says, for he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and evil. So therefore be merciful, even as your heavenly father is merciful. And your reward will be great. And you'll be seen and shown to be a son of the most high. Really, our, the better and deeper our understanding and appreciation of what God has done for us is the only thing that's going to prepare us to be able to do this. Because this is, does not come naturally. You do not, your initial reaction is not that person who is, disagrees with you or is being a jerk to you is not to be like, I just can't wait to love them and bless them. And do good to them. Oh, that's just going to cheer me up. You're thinking, I cannot wait. You're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not dreaming of just, oh, 
hope things are going well at home for them and things are going good at their job. You're like, no, you're like, oh, I cannot wait to get even with them. They do not deserve it. It does not come naturally. But when we think about the gospel, how Jesus turns everything upside down, how one, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that the story of those of us who are his followers are not, I mean, you were just so awesome that God couldn't help but love you. And he is just, oh, I'm so glad that person's on my team. <laughs> it's now we were, the, the story of the scriptures, we were so lost that it took the death of God to pay for our sins. That is what the story is. And that the only way we can be redeemed and can be reconciled is by a loving God who chased down the, really the unmerciful and the ungrateful and offered us his love and forgiveness.